Word. Today we're ending our sermon series called Sexodus. If you haven't been here for the last six weeks, we've been kind of talking about relationships. If you haven't been here and you're like, I don't have any idea what you're going to talk about, the first six weeks have gone in order. Today is just a standalone message. It's kind of, uh, it's, if you haven't been here at all, it, you, you will get something from today's message. But just to kind of let you know where we're at. We've been following what the Bible calls the Israelites, God's chosen people, from the land of slavery to the promised land. In the Bible, if you have an Old Testament, this story goes from Exodus all the way to Joshua, and then it really continues all the way to the, to the New Testament. And, and what you see is you see a people who were slaves for 430 years, and God says, I'm going to rescue you from, from slavery, and I'm going to take you to the promised land. And it should have been a really quick journey. Like, it was a less than 40-day journey from where they were staying to where they were going. So God takes 2 million people out, the Bible says, and he is walking them across the wilderness. They're being led by Moses. And last week, we got to the promised land where, where God said, it's time to go in. And so for the last couple of weeks, we've been tying this story back to, to dating and relationships. Week one, God needs to be your foundation. Jesus needs to set the bar. Jesus needs to be the filter for what you let in and what you keep out of, of your life. Week two, we talked about sex. And some of you are like, I don't understand why the Bible says this about sex and why the Bible says that about sex. And I told you, God is the creator of sex. And chances are, if his rules or his plan for sex seems out of this world, it's because his hope for your sex life is that it would be out of this world. I don't know about you, but that preached to me. Can I get an amen? on that and so I talked to you about sex and then we talked about uh, dating getting prepared for marriage getting ready to be to be a husband or a wife and then we talked John talked awesomely about about good advice getting good getting solid advice and then we moved into marriage and I said at some point in your marriage just like the Israelites you're going to come to the point where you can have the promised land your marriage can be what God has called it to be but you're going to have to decide to fight. The battle is God's. The promises are his. He's going to come through, but you're going to have to fight. So we talked about that. And then last week I told you, I said the opposite of fighting is you're just going to wander the rest of your life. You're going to wander from relationship to relationship. You're going to have an affair. You're going to cheat on your spouse. You're going to look for the greener grass. You're going to kind of give up, and you're just going to wander. So that's where we're at today. The Bible last week said that because they decided they wouldn't fight, that they would wander for 40 years. And every person over the age of 20 in the 2 million people that were right at the precipice of the promised land would never get into the promised land. They would never enter it. They would all die. Even Moses would die. They would never see it except for Joshua and Caleb. And then I kept reading the story and I saw as the 40 years passed, we don't have time to cover that. That would be more than 30 minutes today. But as the 40 years passed, you see their kids approach the promised land. And my question was, was this. Is the kids were just innocent bystanders. Am I right? They, they, they were just following along with their parents. Here, hold on to the cows. Here, hold on to the goats. Here, set up the tent. Here, we're going to the promised land. What are we doing, Dad? Are we almost there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? I don't know. Ask God. He's driving. Are we there yet, God? And they were just kind of there. And they get to the promised land. This would be like you getting to Disney World after your parents had promised you Disney World. And your parents be like, never mind, it's too expensive to see Mickey. We're going home. We're going to Dorney Park. <laughs> I mean, this is disappointment at its finest. They get with their parents. They've come out of slavery. That's all they've ever known. Their parents are telling them we're going to a promised land. They walk through the Red Sea. They get manna from heaven. I mean, they, they, are, they are, this is awesome. This is a road trip of all road trips. And they get there, and their parents won't fight. 
And God turns these people around. And if you ever study this, they just wander around in circles for 40 years. And the kids are just innocent. They've done nothing wrong. So my question is, because when you preach a sermon series like this, there's going to be people, when I say, God has a plan for you and a purpose for you, and you can follow God's path, and many times you get people, and they'll say, I know what you're saying, but I've made too many mistakes, or, or there's been too many things done wrong to me, or I've already gotten divorced, and I've already messed up, or I've already had an affair, or listen, I've been abused, and so I, I kind of live under this, this, this umbrella of shame where I can't even set the bar high because I don't even think that about myself, and so do I need to live in response to what my parents have done, or can I have a better life? Can I really have what you have? Because many people think, look, whatever my parents had, if they got divorced, if I come from a long line of divorcees, then my marriage is destined for a divorce. If my parents cheated on each other, then my marriage is destined for me to have to cheat. If, if, if somebody abused me, then I'm destined to have to walk through life feeling shame and embarrassment and neglect. If somebody yelled at me and spoke death over my life, then I have to live in result to that. And I would think for many people that that is the answer to your life. That this world, what it creates is a victim mentality. Many of you are victims of life. Some of you, I know your situations. Some of you, I don't know your situations. And some of you, quite honestly, if you told me your situations, I would be floored. And so what I'm not trying to do is disqualify the pain you've been in. The question is, is do you have to be a victim, an innocent bystander, of the pain that happened to you? Do you have to live a, a because life? Well, because I went through this, I'm angry. Well, because I went through this, I'm addicted to pornography. Well, because I went through this, I'm addicted to drugs. Well, because I went through this, I can't stay faithful to myself. Because I went through this, do you have to live a because life? Or or can your life be different? Can you live a life that's better than what's been done to you? If you have your notes, I want you to circle this in your mind with a pen. I want you to remember this. People tell us, and I don't know who the people are. But as I speak 30 minutes, you're only going to remember one or two things. The rest of it, you're just going to be like, that dude talks fast. (laughs) Just, I don't even know what he's talking about. I'm cool with that, because I don't remember everything I say. Sometimes people are like, you remember when he said that? I'm like, no, I don't. Remember when you preached last week on this? I'm like, I preached on what? So, So if you can remember one thing, here it is. You ready for this? I think this is so encouraging. Just because something happened to you, doesn't mean it has to continue through you. Can you get that? Just because something happened to you, these these kids are innocent bystanders, doesn't mean it has to continue through them. Just because your parents had this type of marriage doesn't mean you have to have that type of marriage. Just because you were abused, neglected, rejected, doesn't mean you have to continue with that legacy. Just because somebody spoke something negative over your life and you're angry and you're bitter doesn't mean it has to continue with you. I'm a firm believer that Jesus can do more in a moment in your life than not only all the bad that you've done to get to this point, but all the bad that has been done to you, all of that in one ball. Jesus can do more in one moment than all of that has done to you up to this point. He can change you. He can give you hope. He can give you a future. So then the question becomes, how? If what was done to them doesn't have to continue through them, then what is the difference between these people? Because now we're to the point where they've gotten older. Everybody has died off. Their parents have died off. The past has died off. And they are approaching the precipice of the promised land again. And you're going to see it's a very different outcome. The question becomes, 
What was different about them? What's the difference between somebody who has what God has for them, who planned for them, hopes for them, and somebody that never reaches that potential? If you have your Bibles, we're going to go quickly to the book of Joshua chapter 6, the end of our story. The end of the, the exodus to the promised land. They've wandered for 40 years. They come to the promised land again. I want you to notice what it says. Exodus, or not Exodus, Joshua chapter 6, verse number one, it says this, now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Jericho is the promised land. They get to the promised land and they are faced with the exact same thing their parents were faced with. The exact same thing. Their parents go into the promised land. They look around. They're fearful. The people are huge. The walls are big. The armies are big. Their weapons are better than us. They are, it's not like, hey, they gave them 40 years and God really, he, he put down the empire and, and got rid of the, the big armies and kind of made it easier on these kids. They are faced with the exact same situation. I mean, that's disheartening to me. What I would be hoping for is we're just walking around in this wilderness and God's going to kill these people off and we're just going to kind of set up cots. Just hang out. And the exact same thing faces them. Some of you face the exact same thing today that your, fa- your parents faced. Some of you are going through the exact same things that you said you would never go through. Some of you are ready to make the exact same decisions that you were convinced that you would never make because your parents made them. Let's keep going. It says this. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with his kings and his fighting men. Do you see the same thing? They get to the land and then God tells them, I'm giving you this land. The battle is always mine, but you're going to have to fight. The same situation. Let's see how they respond. He says, march around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry the trumpets of ram's horns in the front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up. I mean, this is an awful plan, isn't it? I mean, our, our fathers were going to fight, and now you're telling us to walk, and not only are you telling us to walk with our swords in our, in our little sword holders, whatever they're called, you're having the priests lead us? Let me just, this would be like you telling me, hey, I have a construction company, and we're thinking about building a high-rise, and I'd like you to be my general contractor. I mean, that's dumb. I'm going to come up with the Bible. and Hey, man, we're just going to kind of read this Bible, and you're going to shout. It's going to go up. This is an awful plan. This is even worse than the first plan. The first plan was like, go spy out the land and then go take it. Now you get to the land. You want us to march around the land, the, the wall, six times on the seventh day? You want us to march seven times? Then you want us to yell, and you want the pastors to lead us? Come on, God. See, what's the difference? The Bible says that if you skip down to verse number 15, that they listen. They walked around six times, and then it says in verse number 15, on the seventh day, they got up at daybreak, marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and the sound of the trumpet, when the man gave their, 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 their long shout, the wall collapsed, so everyone charged straight. In other words, exactly what God said was going to happen, happened. So what was different? If you go right to the previous chapter, Joshua chapter 5, it says this of their family of their parents. 
Joshua 5, verse number 6 says, The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness for 40 years. They wandered for 40 years. All the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died. Check this out. Since they had not obeyed the Lord. What's the difference between their parents and the kids? Obedience. If you were to ask me, what is the game changer of my faith? Like, what is the thing that's going to make or break? What is the thing that's going to send my life in the path that God has designed for me? What is the thing that's going to open up the floodgates of heaven? What is the thing that my life, it will be that I cannot possibly live it except for the fact that it's been a miracle of God after a miracle of God after a miracle of God. Some of you would say, if I just read the Bible more and I study more of the Bible, then that will make me more like Jesus. Some of you would say, if I just dress differently... You laugh, but people have come to that conclusion. If we just wear denim, we will be closer to God. Some of you would say, if I just go to church, if I just get every good, famous preacher's books, and I listen to sermons all the time, if I just love God more, if I just would believe in God more, and I would say, the word I'm about to tell you, the word we're about to talk about, maybe encompasses all those things. It's obedience. Obedience is the game changer in life. It's what changes these kids' lives. Where their parents lacked obedience, these kids say, you want us to march six times following the pastors as they play a flute around this wall? Okay. On the seventh day, you want us to march seven times and then yell? I don't know if I want to do that, but okay. Obedience. So let me give you a couple things because this is really important. Some of you, we've got you to this point. We've told you what it looks like to have a godly marriage, to not run, to date right, to set your bar high, and you're like, I just, I don't, I don't know if I want to do that. I don't know if I can get to that. Obedience is what keeps you going. So let me give you three things about why obedience is so important. Some of you are just trying to follow God, and you're like, how do I do that? Obedience. No, number one is this. I think it's so important. Obedience is the bridge between the promise and God's payoff. Obedience is the bridge between God's promise and the payoff. It's between what he wants to do and what he's going to do. You see, you don't determine the future. You determine to be obedient, and obedience is what determines the future. Do you understand? Are you with me with that? You're not the person who's going, okay, God, this is what I think is going to happen. I think I'm going to move here. I think we're going to do this. I think we're going to, I think we're going to build this. I think we're going to have this job and do all this stuff. And God's going, that's not what I want to do at all. That's a wacky plan. That plan's all, I'm going to date this person. God's saying, why? You see their outside, they're good looking, but on the inside, they're ugly. I mean, they, they're ugly. On the outside, they're not much better looking. What you doing? Like, you, you, you want to do that? You want to work? Th- why do you want to work there? Why do you want to go to school? Well, God, I just, and God's saying, stop. Let me just take you step by step, and let me just get you to be obedient. Because obedience is the bridge between what I want to do and what I'm going to do. You see, I'm pretty certain that God's plan for you, for you needs your cooperation. His plan for you needs your cooperation. We, we live in a world where, where it's like we, we can't really decipher like good decision, bad decision, pain, where it came from. Here, here's what I'll tell you about life that I've, that I've experienced as a 34-year-old man. Some of you are a lot older than me. Some of you are a lot older than me. You know a lot more about life than I do. But as a 34-year-old man, for some of you, I'm a lot older than you. And let me tell you what I figured out about life. I bring pain into my life. I don't know if you knew that. I cause struggle in my own life. God does too. 
And some pain is full of purpose directly from God where he goes, you know what? You're trying to live in comfort and you're trying to just make the easy decision. So I'm going to allow a little pain because it's in pain that we constantly kind of change. And it's in pain that we need God. And it's in pain that God, typically his voice is loudest because you start to realize, oh man, I'm in trouble. So God sends pain. I would say between 1% and 2% of the pain that I've caused in my life comes from God. The other 98%, maybe 99, maybe 99.9, is my own stupid pain. My own stupid decisions. I'll explain it to you like this. Up to 6th grade, I was a pretty good student. I really, really succeeded at gym, <laughs> and recess, and art, and board town. I don't know if you're from board town. They have this big open... open campus night where you make all this art stuff and they fill the halls with all your art and, and, you, and one of the big projects when you're in sixth grade is you make this, make this thing out of clay and then they burn, it looks like, I don't know what it looks like, but it's something out of clay and they put all these little things all over the place and your parents come look. I succeeded at that. I mean, I set the bar high for myself in sixth grade. I was great. Something happened between sixth and seventh grade to me. It was called real work. And I didn't like it. I was not a big fan of going to classes and getting homework. I think homework is, is, is from Satan. I'm just saying, if you're a teacher, I know it's part of your job, but you should stop. Right? Better to be liked than to do your job. I'm just saying. I remember I, remember I went to school, and I, I, I didn't know if I was smart or not, but I didn't want to try. And I remember my parents used to get so mad at me, and the reason they used to get so mad at me is because I wasn't reaching my potential. You see, their plan for my life far outweighed my plan for my life at that point. They were thinking all the way down the road, college, moving out, paying bills, getting married, never coming home, right? And in sixth grade, or seventh grade, I'm on, I'm on, I'm on the path to parents' basement. You know, Let's bring my bed down that I used to sleep in, keep the tent on it. Give me a TV and some ramen. I'll be cool. Bring that pottery I made down here. Put that up there on that thing. And they were so angry at me. And I didn't get it, but now I do get it. It's because I was going down the path of not reaching my full potential. And sometimes I think that God looks at us and he goes, would you stop doing, like, I got this plan for you. And you don't even understand it and you don't get it and you wouldn't even get it. And your only job is to just be obedient. That's your job, to just trust me, to just do what I say, to just follow me. And you constantly are going, ah, I think I'll go, I think I'll wander. I don't know if you've ever seen the show, and you probably shouldn't have seen the show. But sometimes I think God looks down, and it's like the show that Johnny Knoxville and Steve-O and Bam Margera used to be on. And he looks at us and he says, please, don't put that alligator on your nipple. Don't do that. And, he, and he's, when I watch it, I'm like, just why? I think God does the same thing to us. He's going, why are you doing that? Why, why are you going, just, just listen to me. My plan for you is so much better than your plan. My love for you is so much deeper than your love. My, my future for you, what I can accomplish in your life, you can never dream possible. Your only job, I mean, isn't that, that takes the stress away. You're like, I'm trying to be great. And God's like, I know. I want you to be great. I want you to do great things for my kingdom in my name. I want to I have, have security and I want to have influence. He's going, I know. I'm going to make you secure. And I want to give you influence over things that actually matter. In fact, the promise was to their, 
to their kids in Deuteronomy a little bit before where we're at. He says, so if you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and all your soul, then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in new grain, wine, and olive oil. Then it says in the very next verse, but be careful or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will come on you. In other words, every promise in the Bible is directly attached to our obedience. Every promise. We like to pray our way out like we used to do when we used to go to class and we didn't study for the test. And we're like, God, you can just, just kill my teacher right now. I'm not, I'm just saying, I'm just joking, God. God, if you could just give her a heart, little heart attack, just get me out of this test. Right? God, if you can just make my brain. And we like to play like that with God when God's going with, just do the work. Just study. Just be obedient. Just follow me. Every promise in the Bible, except for his love, his love for you is always there. You run from God, he runs to you. You hate God, he loves you. You're confused with God, he's there for you. You're bitter with God, his love can handle it. He's cool. God loves you. Every other promise is contingent on your obedience. It's the bridge between the promise and the payoff. N- number two is this. Some of you are like, I get that, but you don't understand my situation. Like, you've been talking about dating, and I did it right. I broke up with my boyfriend. You said not to date somebody who's not a Christian, and I got saved, and I know they're not into it, and they're not going to want to get saved, and I know that the Bible says not to be in the and I broke up six weeks ago, and God has not brought me a new boyfriend yet. <laughs> Some of you are laughing because you know. You're like, God, I've been in the promised land, almost, and I left the promised land, and now I'm wandering, and I've been wandering for six weeks, and now I'm wandering if you see me. You're like, you don't know my situation. Some of y'all are like, you don't know my situation. Seriously, you don't know my situation, pastor. Man, I've messed up. I'm a single mom. I made a lot of mistakes in my past, and you tell me, man, I should, I should deserve, and I should think about it, and I should the bar high, but I know that there's not guys out there that are going to want to be a father to my, my children, and I don't really deserve this, and you don't know my situation. And I constantly want to tell people like that, you are, you are undercutting the potential that God has for you. Unless your life is as a result of a God-sized miracle, you're settling. So here's what you need to know in the context of this story, is both of these people, these groups, these, the kids and the adults, face the exact same situation. And here's what I know about obedience. Obedience isn't living with different circumstances. It isn't made easier because your life, some of you are like, your life's easy. You just obey because God is, always does what you want. I wish. Your life is easy because you've had a perfect family and you haven't had an affair. You haven't had, you haven't done all this. It's easy to obey. Let me tell you something. Obedience is always uncomfortable. Always. Here's what I know. Obedience isn't living with different circumstances. It's rather a different attitude towards circumstances, any of them that come your way. You see, we live in a society, especially you guys, where about 99% of you are pessimists by nature. Pessadelphia, right? We see negative stuff. The truth is, the closer you get to God and the more you realize you can trust him, the more you start to see every situation that comes, the Bible says God is only good to you. So when you label a situation bad, it's just you having the wrong 
thinking in sight of what it is because God's saying, I'm only bringing good stuff. Maybe sometimes you get yourself in a bad situation. And let me tell you something. God is so good that even in the situations that you get yourself in that are bad, God says, I can use if you allow me for good. You see, we're pessimists by nature. And God, when you get close to him, you start becoming an optimist. And every obstacle that you see is just easy. I'm just going to obey. No matter how big it is, I'm just going to obey. God, want me to obey with my finances? I'm going to obey. God, you want me to obey with my marriage? I'm going to obey. God, you want me to obey at my workplace? God, I'm just going to follow you. God, whatever you want, nothing is too big. Nothing is too scary. Nothing can overcome your plan for my life. And number three, lastly, obedience. Because some of you are like, this is hard stuff. Obedience always precedes understanding. Maybe my favorite point of this whole thing. Maybe the one that hits home the most. Because I could tell you from my life, over the last nine years of, of planning Journey Church and just being here, I can't believe it's been nine years, and actually 12 years of being a pastor. You get old quick, y'all. All, all that I know is, is in every step of the way that my obedience preceded the understanding of what God's plan was. Always. I mean, could you just go with me back to this story? I know that, that God said that he, he was going to knock the walls down. And some of you are like, how hard could that be for them to walk around the wall and yell? Because God told them he was going to do it. I would pose the same question to you. God tells you the end if you put him first in your finances and you return back to him the first 10%. He tells you the end. How scary can it be? tells you the end if you trust him in your relationships. He gives you the end. How scary could it be? The problem is not that we know the end. The problem is the middle. The problem is that we got to keep taking the step day by day, and it's in the middle that most of us don't understand. The meantime, the waiting room. Could you just imagine they're walking around the wall, and the first day they get there, everybody's scared in Jericho because they're like, this army's going to attack us. And next thing they know, they realize they're not coming with chariots and with spears and with knives and with swords. They're coming with their pastors, and their pastors are blowing horns, marching around the thing. I mean, the first day, they're going, what are they doing? By the sixth day, they're looking over, and they are laughing at these people. Look at them. Look how cute they are. Look at their pastors playing their favorite. I mean, we've heard this song six days in a row. Could you just imagine as men, if you're prideful like I am, you struggle with that, walking around that wall, hearing them jive you and message you, you thinking, listen, I know you told me to walk six days and you want me to do it seven on the seventh day, but I think I could probably take this sword and throw it up right through his heart if you let me shut him up real quick. And they're just walking. Then on the seventh day, it's like, all right, guys, here's the plan. We've walked six days in a row, played your favorite song. Now we're going to play it seven times. Just put it on repeat on your CD player on the camp's fine. And just walk seven times. And don't say a word. Feel like life? You're following God's plan, and everybody else on the outside, they're usually the most critical. They're going, what is wrong with you? And God's saying, don't say a word. You know the promise. You know the payoff. It takes obedience to get there. You know that obstacles are falling to the wayside. And you know, I want you to remember this, that my obedience always precedes my understanding. I'm going to understand it someday. 
Someday I'm going to see it. And I can only tell you that from experience. As I look back over my life over the last nine years, and I've seen failures, and I've seen hard times where certain people walked out of my life, and I've seen times where I thought we were going to get a building, and it fell through, and I thought this was going to happen, and it fell through, and seasons where the money was tight, and seasons, and I look back now, and I go, I go, it all makes sense. All of it. You see, for some of you, you're like, I can't, can't God just give me his plan right now? And God's going, man, if I told you the plan and I put you where you were at, you would ruin it anyways. I can tell you that in my life. In my marriage, if God would have gave me my wife before I was ready to find my wife, I would have ruined it anyways. I almost, I did everything in my power to ruin it. If God would have gave me this church at the age of 25 when I knew everything, I would have ruined it. And I understand now that it's my obedience every step of the way that precedes understanding. I'll, I'll close with this. I'll explain it to you like this. Is I would say following God and being obedient to him is like putting a piece of Ikea furniture together. Now, I wasn't always an Ikea expert. Now I am. I am an expert. I mean, you want to have a race with me, I'll beat you at putting it together. But I remember my first couple trips to Ikea. I used to walk into Ikea. You would see this beautiful piece of furniture. You know, the best, the best furniture made out of particle board with some kind of plastic wood material on the top that money could buy. And you always walk in, what do you do at Ikea? Oh, this is, this is incredible. Look at this. I need this. Where are you going to put it? I'm going to put it somewhere in the church. Some, it's going somewhere. So you used to get it, and you would, then you would get the little number. You go to the warehouse. You look for a couple days in the warehouse looking for it. You get it. You put it in your cart, right? You ever been to Ikea, the cart? You have to get, like, you know, a license to drive those carts. If you're an expert, you pull the cart from the front, just so you know. You don't push from behind. There's a sermon there. So you pull the cart. You check out. When, you, when you're an Ikea rookie, everybody's laughing because we've all done it. When you're an Ikea rookie, you go home, and you just kind of rip the box open. You throw the pieces all over the floor, and you're like, just, that's why this was $50, right? And you're like, well, at least I got instructions. You pull the instructions out, and you look at them. You open them up as if there's going to be writing in them. And it's just the two little people with the little tools, right? Look like your kid drew it. And you're like, I can't read this. So what do you do? You just flip to the very end, and you just kind of picture it up, and you put it together. And at the end of it, you have screws that are stripped. You have extra pieces left over. You have one drawer instead of three. So what I figured out about Ikea is when you go there, you come home after you get the thing. You already know what you're to be prepared for. You put it on the ground. You open it up nicely. You put all the pieces out in a line. You take the bag of hardware with a million pieces. You don't rip it open like a fool. You cut it open and you gently dump it out on the cardboard and you separate everything. And you take your time on this side so you can have the promise on the other side. And then you open up the directions and you don't skip to the end because you skip to the end and you see the finished product in the midst of all this, you're going to get freaked out. You go page by page by page. First page. Get the little wood thing. Put it in the other wood thing. And that's it. And you go, I got that done. And then you flip the page really carefully. Take a deep breath. And then you put the other peg in. And then you shake it all about, right? And you do that hokey pokey. And, and listen, by the time you get to the end of the book, obedience to those instructions preceded understanding you're going that that is that looks just like the store that's life 
following Jesus, that's life. Obedience precedes understanding. You look at your life and you go, okay, bunch of pieces. I don't really know where they go. I don't really understand them, but I'm just going to follow Jesus each step of the way. I'm in a season of singleness now. I'm just going to be obedient to him. My marriage is in trouble right now. I'm just going to obedient, be obedient. I'm going to fight. I don't understand it all. My job situation, I'm just going to be obedient to what he's called me to do. And I'm going to go in there. I'm going to whistle while I work. Whatever it is, Jesus, you want me to follow you, seek your kingdom, I'm going to do that. Why? Because it's obedience that bridges the promise and the payoff. It precedes understanding. And I guarantee you, when you get to the end of your life, I will put a million dollar bet on this. If you follow Jesus, that he will do immeasurably more with your life than you could ever dream possible. My greatest fear for you is you will get to the end of your life and you have all this talent, all these things inside of you that you've wasted. And God will say to you, here's what you should have done. Here's who you should have married. Here's where you should have went. Here's where you should have lived. But you chose comfort. You chose ease. You chose yourself. And you fell short. Here's what I wanted to do with you. What I want for you is I want you to go, my life, God, is unexplainable. What you've done with me is would have been impossible without you. Had you not loved me, I would have never been able to trust you. But God, I trusted you with my life. And God, you did more than I could ever dream possible. Would you stand with me all over these houses? Would you bow your heads and would you close your eyes? And we're just going to spend a couple moments just praying. If you're a believer in this house, your greatest call and the scariest thing God's calling you to do right now is to just be obedient to him. Let me tell you something. One act of obedience in your life is greater than 100 sermons you're going to hear at Journey Church. One act of obedience. This is between you and God. It's not about me. It's not about what I'm saying right now. I want you just to focus your attention on God, the author and the perfecter of your faith. And he doesn't write boring stories. He's aligned the book of your life, the pages of your life. He knows exactly what he wants to do. You need to cooperate with him. And he will do immeasurably more you could ever dream possible. We, together, will do immeasurably more than we could ever dream possible in this church. You give me a church with a group of people that are humbly obedient to the will of God. And I'll show you a church that changes that number of 4.8 million people. So maybe God's speaking to you today. And I guarantee you, as soon as you start praying this prayer, he's asking you to do something right now. Right now. He's going to put that thought in your head. And your choice is, am I going to follow? No matter how scary it is, no matter how fearful I am, I have decided to follow Jesus. Somebody in this room doesn't have a relationship with Jesus. You don't know if you can trust him. This sounds good to you, but you're a little confused about who you are, where you came from. Let me try to explain that to you. You're not an accident. And you're right here at this moment because God set this up. And you didn't come to church today to try to be a better person. God brought you here because he wanted to speak directly to your heart. You don't have to be as a result of what's been done to you, what's been said about you, who left you, who abandoned you, who spoke negative things over your life, who hurt you. You don't have to be bitter, resentful. You don't have to be a victim. You don't have to live a because life. 
The Bible says that greater is he that lives in me than he that's in this world. That means that Jesus lives in me and he is greater than any wrong that has been done to me. That no longer is my life defined by what's been said, by my past, by my hurt, by my heartache. But my life is now defined by Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he is my Savior. And he died on a cross for my sins, the Bible said. He died the death that I should have died. He died on a cross, naked, full of shame and alone. And that should have been the end of my life because of all the decisions, because of all the wrong, because of all the hurt. I was just a product of all those things. That's how my life should have ended. But the Bible says Jesus hung there for my sins, in my place. He was taken down from that cross and placed into a tomb. And on the third day, he rose again. Now he died the death I should have died. And when he rose, he now gave me a chance to live a life that I should have never had. And let me tell you something. He loves you. Your problem today is sin. Your problem today is anger. And your problem today is bitterness. And your answer today, no matter what it is, is Jesus. His name is powerful in this place. And the Bible says he is knocking at the door of your heart. In our Limerick campus, he is knocking at the door of your heart. You didn't accidentally show up here today. You weren't accidentally invited by a friend. But he has drawn you right to this place. And he can do more right now in this moment. He can give you purpose, hope, a future. He can give you a love. He can give you security. He can restore the areas of your life that were taken from you. If you would just turn your life over to him. If you would repent with your mouth, you would believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. The Bible says you will be saved. Not only will you be saved from this life, from your past, not only will your future be secure in Jesus, but when your heart stops beating on this earth, you have a hope of eternity in store for you. I don't know what to tell you about that and even how to put into words because the Bible says that no eye has seen and no ear has heard the things God has prepared for those that have been called according to his name. And today I am calling you according to the name of Jesus. I'm reaching out to you as your friend. I want nothing from you today. I just want you to know Jesus. That's it. That's why we do what we do. That's why we do the work that we do. That's why people give the money that they give. At both of our campuses, we want people to know Jesus. So with no one looking around in this moment, this is a special moment with Christians praying in this house. You say, Pastor, he's drawing me. He's calling me. I can feel him knocking at the door of my heart. I just want to follow him. Young, old, been in church, never been to church before. Coming to this place with all sorts of baggage, or you come to this place feeling like you're good enough, but you realize quickly you're not. You say, I need Jesus today. I need a Savior. I need that love in my life. With Pastor John standing in the front of Limerick Campus, for those of you watching online right now or during this week, just a simple prayer, a prayer of obedience. I want to follow Jesus. If you're in this place, don't look around in this second. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be ashamed. When I count you, I just shoot your arm in the, in the air and say, you know what? That's me, Pastor. He's talking to me right now. He's speaking to me. I want Jesus to be the Lord of my life all over this house, at our Limerick campus, watching online. If that's you, one, two, three, just say, that's me all over this place. I need Jesus to be the Lord of my life. At our Limerick campus, just push your hand up high. Let Pastor John pray with you. Just keep your hand up high so I can see. I see your hand. Anybody else say, Pastor, that's me. That's why I'm here today. I'm not here by accident. 
out of Limerick Camps, just keep your hand up high so Pastor John can pray with you as we close. This is why we do church. And the neat thing is, is if the Bible says if one person comes home, that all of heaven rejoices. And you're not the only one because two people in the first service that I know of right here gave their hearts to the Lord. So you're just joining with the crowd that's saying, I need Jesus. Does anybody else say, Pastor, that's me? This is my moment. Lord, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this time with our Limerick campus in Phoenixville. Lord, I thank you for these rooms that you've given us. Lord, these aren't ordinary rooms. And the reason they're not ordinary is because when God's people come together and sing his praises, he inhabits that very room. And it's your presence, Lord, that draws men, men and women to yourself. It's your presence that changes hearts. It's your presence that does the impossible. And so I thank you that your word was proclaimed. It was accepted. It was understood. And now there's people responding to the gospel. I was lost, and now I'm found. That Jesus, you died on a cross in our place for our sins. You were taken down off that cross, and you were placed into a tomb. And on the third day, you rose from the dead. Not only did you die for my sin, but you defeated my sin. Not only did you die because I was going to hell, but now you've rescued me from hell. You saved me and you set me free. Not only that, you've given me a purpose and a plan. And so I thank you right now, those that are praying with me, Jesus, be the Lord of my life and be my Savior. Not only do I want you to save me from my sins, but I want to follow you the rest of my life. I want to put my full trust. I want to be completely obedient to you because I know that your plans for me are much greater than my plans. Your purpose for me is much higher. Your future for me is much greater. So I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for your presence. I thank you for speaking to us over the last seven weeks, Lord. I thank you for this journey that we've taken, for the marriages that are better, for those that are in a season of singleness, that are more secure, that are more aware and are more, un more available to your presence. Lord, and you're doing things right now. They're not in a time when they're just waiting, but they are, they are having things accomplished in their life. I pray for the singles in this place that they would never settle. I thank you for everything you've done, and as we look forward, would you continue to do what only you can do? But let us be a church that not only says it on Sunday, but let us be a people that exists for those that don't yet know you. Let us be on mission this week, at work, at the pool, on vacation even. Let us be on mission for you, to reach people far from you. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your presence. In your name we pray. Amen. Come on, would you clap with me, church?